Welcome back to the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, it is your host, Eric Gotzi, and it has been a minute since I've done a podcast. And, uh, you know, life has been happening the way that life does. Um, for the last couple of months, I've been obsessed with essentially aggregating um, the 14 years of notes and experiences and initiations that I've done and to try to condense it into a curriculum that would be like what I would teach if I were a college professor. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but one of my first dreams for my life before uh, psychedelics was to be a professor of psychology and philosophy at a university. Um, and now with what I do for work, fit for service, uh, we've changed our structure to now basically be like a modern university where we're going to have six different classes that's going to culminate in us doing the five day events that we're famous or infamous for. Um, and I get to teach mental fitness. And this is my opportunity to fulfill that dream. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's been, and still is, uh, just magnetically potent. And it's why I haven't been doing a podcast in a while, because I've been deep, you know, almost borderline manic, uh, reviewing and stitching together everything that I've accumulated, you know, over the last 14 years. Um, but I'm back at least for a little bit to do a interesting experiment. So this experiment is I'm going to release a podcast episode each day while I'm in the darkness. Thanks to Graham, my producer and one of my best friends, uh, Caitlin and I will be in the darkness for six days, starting on, uh, February 9th. 2024 and that's when this first episode will come out this episode might come out on the 10th but uh the reason i'm recording these episodes is i'm going to be reading the essays that i wrote last year right before i went into the darkness um i had a period of euphoria and inspiration at the beginning of the year last year where these six to eight essays just came out of me and it really felt like uh, i was illuminating my path into the future in a way that i didn't understand and it was through those articles that the idea of the dharma artist came through as like the goal like uh as like the archetype to help people download or become, depending on what metaphor you want to use, to basically be a superhero in 2024. I think there is a opportunity for the articulation of a specific archetype uh, that hasn't been articulated yet because with the emergence of the internet and the dimension that the internet introduces it changes the world like the topology or the landscape of the world in such a way that uh young couldn't have imagined what 
this future would have been, you know, Plato, and then just go through the list of the greatest geniuses that you can possibly imagine. If they lived more than a hundred years ago, they couldn't even have imagined the type of world that we live in. And there's a new opportunity to mold a new set of archetypes for how to navigate this, you know, 2024 and forward. And long story short, the culmination or the goal, the intention of my life's work is to essentially um, help people thrive psychologically. And the Dharma artist is the clearest and greatest articulation of that that I have that I'm currently capable of. And there's something special about doing the darkness again almost exactly a year after I started to write these essays. Like this first essay was written January 20th, 2023. And just to see how big the idea of the Dharma artist is now for me, it's just cool to go back and uh, check these out. So I'm gonna read these and I'm gonna be sharing it each day while I'm in the darkness. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you want to hear my post-darkness recap and a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th, you can go to my website, ericgotzi.com, and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear what the darkness was like, and if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, erigatsi.com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. Without further ado, let's get into the first episode. Episode one of the Horizon series, Skyscrapers and Cathedrals. If you want to see what a society really believes in, look at what the biggest buildings on the horizon are dedicated to. Joseph Campbell. I can see Austin's skyline on the horizon from my computer. My home is just south of the Colorado River that splits the city, tucked away on a small hill that allows me a clear view into what Austin really believes in. But it's not really what Austin alone believes in because our cities aren't quite as different from each other as we'd like to believe. Austin's horizon, and your city's horizon, is a whole on of Western society's horizon. If you want to see what a society really believes, look at what the biggest buildings on the horizon are dedicated to. Our horizons are monuments to finance, hotels, condos, and corporations. Gods are characters embedded in stories that help humans cope with existence. Our gods that we pretend aren't gods are money, consumerism, comfort, and corporations. These are our collective beliefs. More important than the kind of gods they confess that we believe in is the temporal horizon that they confess we live by. This is important to go through slowly. 
A temporal horizon is the expanse of time an individual's consciousness is capable of imagining or to play within. The length of temporal horizons that a person is capable of seems to be correlated to that individual's level of psychological development. The temporal horizon of an infant is maybe 20 seconds. It takes years of growth for an infant's brain to get to the point where it's able to ab abstract the idea of tomorrow, therefore extending their temporal horizon from a few seconds to 24 hours. The temporal horizon for a teenager may be at most two to four years. Coincidentally, this is about the same temporal horizon that is required to be a politician, four years. The temporal horizon of a new parent, hopefully, if they understand how to be a parent, is at least 20 years. The temporal horizon humanity needs from its leaders is at least 100 or 200 years. The temporal horizon of our modern working culture is three to 12 months. Our gods think in quarterly earning reports. Now, asterisk, it is worth noting that a bigger time horizon is not always better. There are some people living in the scientific worldview that imagine temporal horizons so fast that they include the heat death of the universe, and they often use that temporal horizon to justify not doing something, or to flaunt their intellect and to kill a conversation. That used to be me. Our modern skylines are a confession of our temporal horizons and they beg to be stretched. And in our age, with the rising tide of existential risks like nuclear fallout, ecological collapse, biological weapons, and the emergence of AI, a culture without a temporal horizon that spans generations will not span many more generations. What would we need to do to expand our zeitgeist's temporal horizon from three to 12 months to three to 12 generations? What would a culture build with a multi-generational temporal horizon? Cathedrals. As a young self-righteous atheist, I would have been happy to tell you why God wasn't real and why you were an idiot. What I wouldn't have told you is that I prayed every night and I dreamt of cathedrals. I've been in love with cathedrals since I was a child. They felt like portals to something that felt like deja vu. But more important than the architecture, the art, and the stained glass window panes are what cathedrals symbolically stand for. Cathedrals are symbols for multi-generational communal projects. Something began to stir in the zeitgeist in the 13th century of Europe. The seizure of this seizing was the construction of the first classic cathedrals. The temporal horizon of a cathedral is generations. The average construction time for a cathedral was 300 years. Imagine for a moment what kind of wild energy would be required for the United States or Russia or China to commit to a 300-year construction project. If you are somehow able to imagine that, now add that the 300-year project is not being done to make money or to acquire geopolitical edges over other countries. 
Can modern people even fathom how a group of people could dedicate themselves to a multi-generational project, not to earn riches or geopolitical power, but so they would have a place to house their myths, to sing their songs, and to play out their rituals and dramas, so people could meet in a sanctified place. Now, a real quick asterisk, I talked about this idea on the third Eyedrops podcast with Michael Phillips, and he posted a clip of it, and it went viral, and there were a bunch of people talking about how the cathedrals were made by slave labor. All you gotta do is go Google, and you'll see that that's not true. And if there's even one case where a cathedral is built without the use of force, proves this idea is possible. But if you actually go Google, almost none of them were. So I uh, just wanted to clarify that for the people that might see this outside of my natural algorithm. A culture can only create multi-generational works of art if they have a strong living myth. I'm gonna say that again. In order for a culture to create a multi-generational project, they must have a strong living myth. And as a modern culture, we are utterly inept at creating a living myth that we're able to live within. It's as if our culture has collective PTSD from living in the myths that came before, and honestly, rightly so. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the mass pedophilia, and the other greatest hits of monotheistic religion over the last few hundred years have left a lot of people, understandably, uninterested. Stack this with the historic rise in the scientific method and her children, chemistry, physics, geology, etc. And we have motive, cause, and the weapon for killing God. Friedrich Nietzsche, more than 100 years ago, wrote the following, now world-famous announcement heralding the death of God. And just understand, God as a monotheistic myth that binds billions of people into a common story. So from Nietzsche's book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, this is the part that is called The Parable of the Madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours that ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God, I am looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around together there, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one? Did he lose his way like a child, said another? Or is he hiding, is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or immigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But now and how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as though through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? 
Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming all of the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, murderer of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? With what water could we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we need to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become gods simply to be worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whosoever shall be born after us for the sake of this deed, he shall be part of a higher history than all other history hitherunto. Here the madman fell silent and again regarded his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern to the ground and it broke and went out. And he said, I have come too early. My time has not yet come. The tremendous event is still on its way, still traveling. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds require time even after they are done, before they can be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. It has been further related that on that same day, the madman entered divers' churches and there sang a requiem. Let out and quieted, he is said to have retorted each time, quote, What are the churches now, if not the tombs of God? Every time I read that, it stirs something deep inside of me. Nietzsche, more than a hundred years ago, was able to see that the binding myth of Western culture had been slain. And we are living in the fallout of that. And we have to contend with the facts of it. And as grandiose as that might sound, I'm attempting to get to that in these essays. So let's carry on. <clears throat> this is a fact that we need to face because the death of this God is the reason that our horizons look the way that they do, which is a reflection of the wasteland of our inner horizons. In order to navigate humanity into the 22nd and 23rd century, we're gonna need to create some new myths. The rise and fall of civilizations is the long, broad course of history can be seen to have been largely a function of the integrity and the cogency of their supporting canons of myth. For it is not authority, but aspiration that is the prime motivator, builder, and transformer of civilization. That's a quote from Grandfather Joseph Campbell. Glancing at our city's horizons is a kind of zeitgeist pulse check. You can even imagine that the horizon and these buildings make up the peaks and the valleys of a heart monitor. The health of our zeitgeist can be seen by savoring our horizons. And if you look, you will notice that our culture is sick. The four functions of myth. 
Joseph Campbell, the eminent mythologist, outlined four functions that myth must fulfill in the human psyche to become a living, creative mythology. Asterisk. These are the four functions that previous generations' gods fulfilled. If you want to think about it mythically, it's kind of like the French Revolution. Western culture got really excited at the prospect of overthrowing the king, comma, the monotheistic god. We all kind of did it in a frenzy, and now we're at the steering wheel of a civilization that needs myth to function, but we don't have a myth to guide it. Campbell can give us a hint. In his words, the four functions of myth are, quote, number one, myth's psychological function is to center the individual, to carry them through these stages of development and to harmonize them with their world. Number two, myth's metaphysical function is to awaken in the individual a sense of awe and gratitude for the ultimate mystery, reconciling them with reality as it is. Number three, Myth's cosmological function is to present a total image of the universe through which the ultimate mystery may manifest. And number four, myth's sociological function is to validate and maintain a certain moral order of laws for living with others in society. So we can think of these four functions as one, the psychological function is your personal story that helps you work through hard shit. Number two is the metaphysical story. And this is where most people don't have this type of story in modern life. But number two is a metaphysical story is essentially a frame or a map for what reality is. You know, it would be a map that could contend and integrate evil and death. Number three, the cosmological function is essentially like a new world mythology, which would be like a new world religion. That would be the cosmological function. It would basically be a story that could integrate the Big Bang and everything that science has been able to produce along with all the deep spiritual insights that all of the religions have acquired throughout time. And we don't have that. We don't have a collective cosmological myth. And number four, the sociological function is essentially the part of the myth that informs how you should act as a adult to help other people. So asterisk, the new myth, which is number three, the cosmological function, has a personal and a collective aspect. Fulfilling the personal facet will be much easier than the collective. The personal, you can decide if you're a reincarnated bodhisattva here to help people wake up, or you can decide that you're an engineer who is dedicated to creating technology that can help humanity become an interplanet species. Somehow, you can feel that the myth reconciles you and the world in a profound, fundamental way. Awesome. Valid. Go for it. However, whatever the collective new myth will be, it will take generations to create. It will be a communal project. Whatever the new myth is, it's going to have to contend with everything that modern science has discovered and be able to integrate it with the living remnants of all the major religions and the horizons of gods that currently steer our culture. It would be a truly like past, present, and future interweaving. None of us will fulfill this collective facet in our lifetime, uh, but it's not required for you to start 
acquiring the nutrients that can come from having a coherent personal myth. And that's what we're going to work on in the rest of these essays. All right, so level one, the personal myth. It can be hard to see if you don't train your eyes to notice, but if you looked at the last 200 years, marked the time that Nietzsche announced that God had died, and then tracked what had unfolded, something surprising to our modern minds would become clear. In the wake of God's death, we turned to pseudo-gods, and they were worse. Our pseudo-gods are ideologies. To the drumbeat of 20th century political and economic ideologies, humanity murdered and starved hundreds of millions of their own brothers and sisters. World War I, World War II, Stalin, Mao, and there are more. The last 100 years has marked the largest self-inflicted genocide in recorded history. Rough estimates from just over the last four events, World War I, World War II, Stalin's reign, and Mao's reign, between 80 to 120 million deaths have been committed. And that's not including quote-unquote diseases of civilization, which I'll get into in the Wasteland article, which is a much larger conversation. It's fucked up. In the same way that the human body needs water and oxygen and a way to remove carbon dioxide, Campbell asserts that the soul needs a living myth. The psychological function of mythology has helped people navigate childhood, puberty, adolescence, tragedy, death, childbirth, parenthood, suffering, and ultimately, their own death. These are examples of, quote, myth helping to center the individual, to carry them through the stages of development. The second part of the psychological function of myth is to, quote, harmonize them with their world. Hopefully that you've realized it by now, but we live in a constant tension between two worlds. There is the world that is, quote, out there, and the world that is out there is governed by the laws of physics, where the ruling myth is science, and it's earned its place out there because of what it's able to predict. But then there is the world in here. Oh my, this in here world is much stranger than the out there world. There are dreams, fantasies, unconscious drives, triggers, flashbacks, altered states, Every god and every demon that has ever existed lives in some real sense in this inner world. A living myth, in order to fulfill the psychological function, must bring harmony between the in-here world and the out-there world. This stage is called the quote-unquote personal myth because there are no living myths in our era that will fulfill this function for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. Generations ago, we could have turned to our collective myths to help fulfill this function. But today, this is a personal task. Next week, I'll talk more about how to begin to build a personal myth. But for the sake of space, I'm just going to introduce the other functions for this episode, and we'll get into it more on the next one. Level number two is the personal living mythology. So the next function is the metaphysical function. In order to reach this level, an individual has to experience a myth die and be reborn, often twice. Let's paint the picture here. 
most of us are born inside of a crippled myth. My first myth was a Frankenstein combination of the American dream and the way that it was brought to us, you know, post-World War II by corporations trying to rule the fucking world. So the American dream plus like the athlete's dream. My version of the American dream was that if I did well in school and I went to college and I guess, I don't know, work 40 years for a university or something in some vague way, I'd win. And the athlete's dream was the story that if I worked hard enough and trained hard enough, I'd be able to be a professional athlete in that too. Like the American dream would bring some type of vague fulfillment or like I won. My first myth that died was the athlete's dream. My junior year of high school, a teammate in practice came up behind me and fouled the shit out of me and tore my shoulder from its socket. He hit me so hard. Uh, it was basically the end of my high school momentum. And I became depressed. I got surgery. The recovery time was six to nine months, and that would be the rest of my senior year. Uh, I was giving a huge prescription to opiates. This was in 2009, so it was before it became popular to understand that uh, you don't give an 18-year-old who doesn't have parental supervision something like two or three months worth of Oxycontin. And I got addicted. And then when I ran out, because I didn't know how to get more, I started overeating to get that opiate response and I gained 40 pounds. So by the time I graduated high school, in the matter of a year and a half, I went from uh, you know, a star athlete to torn shoulder, 40 pounds overweight, and uh, biochemically fucked up. Then a year later, my second myth died. I failed at school. I had never had to try in high school. And in my first year of college, I ended up just not going to any of my classes because it got hard. And I ended up failing every class my second semester in college. And my GPA at the end of the year was 0 0.7. By the time I was 19, both of my myths that I had lived had died. They both were incredibly flimsy myths, not fulfilling any of the mythical functions deeply, but they were what I had. Most of us in Western culture have our own version of this story, and we can just call it the glass Frankenstein myth. This is most modern people's default myth, some haphazard combination of fragile myths. The other half of most modern people is that they grew up in one of the major religions, but in the 21st century, these religions have lost almost all of their mythic mana that they held years ago. In a world that's powered by cell phones and computers and planes and satellites, the gravity of gods have shifted from Yahweh and Allah and Jesus and Krishna to Google and Apple and Facebook and Twitter. We can call this type of hollowed out God the hollowed out God myth. And the thing that I want to just be really specific on here is the God is hollow wherever it is taught, literally. 
the God can still be living and the power of the symbols can be there if the congregation is symbolically mature enough to be able to get to it. But my controversial opinion that I think is fact is anywhere where the old religions are taught at specifically as literal interpretations of historical fact that is a hollowed out God. That's probably gonna lose me some followers, but um, hopefully if you understand what I mean, you'll understand that I'm giving the highest compliment uh, to the places where God is still alive. Okay, so most people in Western culture have a combination of some version of either the glass Frankenstein myth or the hollowed old God myth. What happens to both of these myths when they encounter the ultimate mystery is that they break. When our myths break, our inner world loses its center. It's a lot like the quote that Nietzsche talked about. The manifestation of this phenomena, Western culture calls mental illness. Yeats called it the second coming. And this is a quote from his poem. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosened upon the world." End quote. The fulfillment of the metaphysical function of myth is when we alchemize the death of our myths when they encounter the ultimate mystery. The ultimate mystery is like the sun. Everything that we see is the result of what you could call God. We know it's there, but we can't look directly at it because if we did, it would burn and destroy our eyes. There is an ultimate mystery at the center of our lives that is so brilliant that if we looked directly at it, we would start to fall apart. The Greeks believed that if the gods revealed their true form, the human would burst into flames. When Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita reveals his true form to Arjuna, the human prince falls to his knees and begins to cry and beg for Krishna to put back on his mask. The ultimate mystery is the room that the brave or the stupid psychonaut flirts with when they begin to climb into the heroic dose range. Some of the masks of the ultimate mystery are death, accidents, tragedies, birth, miracles, synchronicities, consciousness itself, dreams, the fact that we can imagine, evil, suffering, reincarnation, and what Jung called the mysterium tremendum. The requirement that needs to be filled by a living myth is to meet this metaphysical function it must be able to integrate the ultimate mystery into its story. I'll talk about it more in another post, but the essence of this stage of the mythical function is, quote, I am not my story. I am that which tells stories. Once we get to this level of development, we can move from the personal myth to a personal living mythology which is not to identify with whatever your story is about yourself, but to recognize that you are the art that generates the story. I'll give you an example. Someone who is 20 
and who just fucking believes in themselves and they watch Gary V and Alex Hormozzi and whoever else online and they're going to be rich. And they really believe it. And it allows them to move through any fucking obstacle. You could say that that is someone who has a personal myth. But if that person gets to, so there's a great book by Stephen King and it's called The Stand. And uh, there's a character who is pursuing to be famous uh, as a musician and is working their ass off and finally gets it. That's the fulfillment of the personal myth. But because it's a, a Stephen King book, uh, there's a biological outbreak and basically civilization comes to an end. There is no more reward for being famous. If you don't have a personal living mythology, that character will kill themselves. Someone who can no longer pursue the dream that keeps their personal story alive. And that is basically a myth that hasn't integrated the ultimate mystery. A personal living mythology would be whatever story would emerge out of that character that allows them to continue now that their first dream has died. So that is the difference between level one, personal myth, and level two, the metaphysical function of mythology. Level three, the new myth, a genesis myth. So the third function is the cosmological function. This myth is gonna be a doozy. I'm not gonna go into a deep exploration here because it's gonna to take too long and take us away from what's important. But the essence is that our zeitgeist needs a new genesis myth. We need a new cultural story that does two things. Number one, it has to fulfill all four mythological functions. And two, it has to integrate the scientific myth into it. The dominant myth of our time is the science myth. It has earned its place at the top of stories because of how powerful it is, but it does not nurture the human soul. It does not inspire and spiritually feed humanity. We need a new cultural myth that includes and transcends our current scientifically dominated mythology. The essence of level three for the individual is that they acquire the ability to mythically play. Mythic play is the ability to move into mythic thinking as play and to be able to move back into the world of logic and physics and the scientific method with humility. The ability to mythically play can be learned at level two, which is the level we just talked about, but it is required to pass level three. So let me just give you an example here. Uh, whatever the next Genesis myth is going to be, if humanity is ever going to get to a point where we have a coherent mythology, that mythology is going to have to create a frame that can integrate everything that we know in science with everything that we know in spirituality and philosophy. And it's really like trying to merge quantum physics with general relativity. We have two distinct maps and most people don't see how they can overlap at all. In order to do that, you're going to have to have an army of artists and thinkers and creators capable of talking across the maps. 
Like a Christian mystic is going to have to be able to talk to a chemist who believes, you know, in Buddhism. If we're ever going to have a new Genesis myth. And so that's why I say mythic play, which is the capacity to step into different worldviews and see as them is the primary skill of what we will eventually be calling a Dharma artist. All right, level four, becoming a mythic artist. So my goal this year is to, and I'm going to cringe saying this, is to write 49 articles because I wrote this last year and I only wrote like 10. Uh, I've set myself the limit of 3,000 words per article. So I'm going to need to wrap this up because this article is almost 3,000 words. The fourth function of myth is sociological. It is when myths change the behavior of the collective. It is only the fourth function that can build cathedrals. And we live in a time where fire, threat, bomb, and war will not work anymore. The only thing that can heal this zeitgeist is the mythic artist. The mythic artist, which I'm going to call the Dharma artist going forward, is someone who is intimately connected to their personal living mythology. Their living mythology has connected them to their sacred work, their dharma, and to the well-being of all of their brothers and sisters on this planet. Their beating, living mythology demands expression. They express through art. Because they are so connected to their myth, they will, at times, give birth to art that is for the culture. A book, a song, a play, an invention, something from the other world will pour through them and they will give birth to it. The solutions to our culture's pain will flow from Dharma artists. Level three and four are not for everyone. They require a level of luck to attain and they demand a heavy sacrifice to fulfill. But levels one and two are available to all of us. Creating a personal myth and eventually growing it into a personal living mythology is literally world-changing and everybody has access to it. On this next episode, I'm going to dive deeper into what level one, level two myth-making looks like and give practical examples for how to begin. My goal with these articles is to help who are called to learn how to play and create with myth. And an ending quote from Antone Saint, and then a name that I can't pronounce, E-X-U-P-E-R-Y, is quote, a pile of rocks ceases to be a pile of rocks when somebody contemplates it with the idea of a cathedral in mind. Chef's kiss. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Horizon series. If you are still listening, um, if you have ever wanted to work with me, there are 120 spots over the next year to be in one of my three curriculums where I'm going to be teaching how to be a Dharma artist. I started at Chipotle wrapping burritos. I knew almost no one and I had almost no money and I've been able to create a life beyond what I was able to dare to imagine as an artist with my artistic integrity in living relationship with myself and anyone who is listening, who
who has access to this podcast and who has access to the internet, you can have that type of life yourself. There are clear systems and techniques and practices that work, and I will teach you how to do that. And I put my reputation on it, that it will be the best money that you have spent on a self-development program. And if it's not, email me, have a conversation with me, and I might just give you a refund out of my own pocket, because that's how much I believe in this. So if you feel called, go check it out at fitforservice.com. I'm the Mentally Fit Program, and let's go. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you wanna hear my post-darkness recap and a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th, you can go to my website, ericgotzi.com, and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear what the darkness was like, and if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, erigatsi.com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. I love you guys. See you on the other side.